So I have a question for you. How do you tell if someone is a king or a queen? How do you tell? <laughs> they sit down. <laughs> how would you tell if someone was a king or a queen? If they came up to you, how would you tell? A crown? Is it a crown? Do you all agree it's a crown? Okay, you can go see your teachers in the back, back here for children's church. Three-year-olds through fifth grade can go back there. Yeah, a crown, a crown. Well, that's one way that we might uh, be able to tell. You know, when you think of a king or you think of a queen, you know, what sorts of things uh, come to your mind? You know, sometimes I think we tend to maybe romanticize it a bit, especially if you watch very many Hallmark uh, romance movies. You know, they've always got the one where the, the king from some country you've never heard of you know, and so small, and, and he comes and he falls in love with the commoner, and then the whole thing, they, they can't get married because she's not royalty, and they work it out in the end, they change the law, they do whatever, and they get, it's kind of the Cinderella story, you know, all over again, and, and they come together. Or sometimes uh, we think of some figurehead who, who steps forward, I, I, or we might think of someone like, even like the Queen of England or something like that, and and you think, well, do they, do they really have power? You know, they have power of influence and that, but the people adore them. In fact, you know, I, I remember watching on TV, seeing royalty, you know, in England coming down the street, and the people are just cheering, you know. It's almost like a Taylor Swift concert. In fact, I was told recently uh, by some who were there that uh, as Taylor comes onto the stage, people were screaming and crying, screaming and crying, you know. Uh, in their praise and adoration of Taylor Swift. She must be royalty, you think? I don't know. But really, when we think about kings and queens, you know, maybe what comes to our mind if we take enough time uh, is, is some of the despots who have been in history, some of the, of the kings and queens who have done terrible things. And there's been a lot of them. I mean, we can just go to the Bible itself, go to the Old Testament. And we find there that, that when the children of Israel, they brought out of Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness. And then finally, when they come to the promised land and they get there and Joshua takes them in and, and, and they conquer the peoples that were against them and they start to take possession of the land, we reach that book of history in our Old Testament called Judges. And there we find uh, that the people don't follow God. In fact, anarchy seems to be what's going on. And, and the writer of Judges at the front and the back of that book, he, he kind of bookends what he says in the middle with his theme. And that theme is one sentence. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if you just read that, you would think, okay, the king is the solution. In fact, the people thought that having a king would be the solution. And so they go to Samuel, who was really the, the last of the judges. He was a prophet of God. And they said, give us a king. And, and he's mad at him. He says, no, you've got God. And he goes, no, give us a king. And, and he goes to God and, and he's all upset. And God says, listen, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Uh, if the people are insistent, then give them a king. But warn them of what a king will require of them, of what a king will do. He will take your sons and daughters into his service for his armies and for his servants and for those things. He will take the best of your land. He will take the best of your produce. He will take all of those kinds of things. 
and you will suffer under a king. But they insisted, and so, uh, you know, Samuel anointed Saul as king, and, and he didn't work out so well. Then came David and, and Solomon, and that was better, and they kind of helped establish because they were willing, at least, uh, for the most part, to follow God, although they both had their problems. And then there was division, again, over kings, such that Israel was split in two, and there's Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and Israel in the north would have 19 kings, all of them bad. And Judah in the south would have 20 kings, and only eight of them would be considered good kings, even though all those good kings had their problems, and then there, then there were the others that, that were bad. And we don't have to look to the, the Bible. We can look at kings and queens throughout history and find that the majority of them uh, seem uh, to have their problems. Even the best ones seem to have their problems. And, and so we struggle with, well, why is that? Well, because kings and queens are just people like you and me. Uh, and, and they're broken and they're selfish. And as the old saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so when they get, you know, we think to ourselves, well, if I was in charge, you know, how many times, have you ever said that? Well, if I was in charge, and basically we're saying, if I was the king, you know, uh, if everyone would just agree with me, if everyone would do the way I want, then everything would be great, right? Because I wouldn't do the things that others have done. And I say, baloney. <laughs> the only reason you don't do those things is you don't have the resources to do them. I know that even about myself. And so the reason I'm going here is because today we are going to this Psalm, Psalm 103. We're in the summer of Psalms. And again, the Psalms are the songbook of, of the Israelites, the songbook of God's people. And this Psalm we're looking at today was written by David. Uh, scholars think that he wrote it late in his life because of the nature of the Psalm, that, that it seems that he has an experience of, of what it means uh, to be redeemed by God. And certainly he needed that at points in his life. And to understand how small he is, even though he himself is a king, compared to God himself. And so David, within the context of God being king, the one who is the only one who should be king, king of the universe, writes this psalm, Psalm 103. And again, commentators say they believe this to be one of the jewel of the psalms. A, a, psalm, a praise psalm to God that captures so many truths for us. And so we're gonna take a look this morning at this psalm. And we're gonna think of it in terms of uh, the God who loves us and why we should praise him because that's what David's gonna be talking about. Why we should praise God. Who is he in our lives? And what does he represent as the king of the universe? So we're gonna look at this. I've broken it up again, kind of like a song. You know, in this song, there's gonna be an introduction and then there's gonna be a couple of stanzas and then there's going to be his one-liner conclusion, the great crescendo at the end as he comes to the end of this song. Uh, so let's start together. Uh, first, David begins with his introduction. It's a call to praise God uh, in verses one and two. And I'd like to read those two verses. This is what he says. He says, praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, just let me make a comment here because uh, if, you're, if you're like me and, and when you were younger, you, you read this psalm and you learned it, it was always, bless the Lord, O my soul. 
and all that is within me, bless his holy name. We had that word bless, but the NIV translation here uses the word praise. And so I was kind of curious about that. And some commentators say, well, we've struggled with this idea of blessing because many times blessing falls within the context of uh, the greater person offers or showers blessings upon the lesser. And that certainly is not the case uh, where God is concerned and us. He is the greater, we are the lesser. And so they would, they would say, but in our praise and adoration of God, he, he is blessed, uh, where the, the, those who are lower are blessing the greater. Um, the word actually in Hebrew there is the word barak, and, and it means literally to kneel in adoration. Uh, that's what the word means, to kneel in adoration. So it's been variously translated as bless or blessing, uh, praise, uh, salute, uh, thank, uh, those sorts of things. For our purposes today, we're gonna to use the word praise because I think it, it just cuts the heart of where the psalm is going as well in terms of a call for us to praise the Lord. And so as we look at this introduction, the first thing he says is, uh, praise God, praise him with your very soul, he says. Praise him with your very soul. Our praise is not to be some kind of superficial praise, Okay. Uh, it's not to be ritualistic, and we can do that sometimes. We can sing a praise song, and it's one maybe that, that we know well, and we get to a point where we're just, you know, mouthing the words, and we're going on because we know this, and, you know, it's, it's kind of, okay, we get through it, and then it's done. Uh, last week, uh, when we came to our communion time, uh, Todd really tried to help us understand that how, how communion itself, the bread and the cup, uh, can become ritualistic. It can become something. It's why we had Tony come up. It's why we have people come up and, and to share because we're wanting us to think deeper than just the surface level. Think deeper about what it is we're doing. We won't, don't want things just to become ritual. Rituals are good, but if they lose their meaning, then they lose their power. And so as he talks, he says, praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. All that, I'm not, in fact, what I picture here as he, as he says this, you know, and we so often do, we say, I'm gonna, you know, praise you God, you are my God, I praise you, I lift you up, I give you all of me, except for, I'm gonna keep this stuff in the closet right here, right? And we do that, we, we, I have these little things that I know God doesn't like, that I know are not good, but I wanna hang on to those. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna close them away in this little closet over here and, I'm, and I don't have to then, you know, but I'll praise them with everything else. You know, so when we sing this, we, should, we say, praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that I'm willing to give him, praise his holy name. No, it's not what he says. And all that is within me, praise his holy name. And so he calls us to praise with our entire self. And then he jumps to the next part of that and he says, Praise him for all his benefits. All the things that he has done for us. And by the way, we don't deserve anything that he gives us. We are, we are a, a, a people who rebel. We are a people who are selfish. We are a people, all of us, who want to do our own thing. And yet, God loves us. Uh, and, and he cares about us. The apostle John said in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. He first loved us. So David calls us to remember his benefits, remember his love, 
And out of that, we should praise him. So that's his introduction. Now he goes in to stanza one, or verse one, if you want to call it that, but, but stanza one of the song. And this part of the, the, the song, it, it, David's going to say, praise God for what he has done for us. He's talked about his benefits. Now let's talk about what those are. And so he says, first of all, uh, he has redeemed us. Now there's an interesting word, again, redeemed, just, just remember, so we remember what it means. He has bought us back, okay? We were sold into slavery, you know, slavery to sin, slavery to addiction, slavery to all kinds of different things. And he has bought us back. He has redeemed us. We are forgiven through Jesus. And those of us who are on this side of the cross, which is all of us here, we understand, or at least we've heard the story of how he orchestrated that through Jesus, how God became one of us. Jesus walking among us who never sinned, but took our death upon himself, who died on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that the price could be paid for our sin. How can we not praise God for that reality, for that truth, the greatest benefit we could receive, receive from him? And then he goes on and says that, that he, he comes to heal us as well. He's heal, all healing comes from him. And, and I think about that, and I think, you know, I've been a part of, of different people who have, have come, and, and we've prayed for them, and they've been healed. But then I've been in situations where people have not been healed as well. And we look around us, and we see people, and we think, well, that person over there, they certainly deserve healing. Why doesn't God heal them? And again, like, like the sermon I preached a couple weeks ago, where remember I ran the little video where people were playing soccer with those big bubble things on and bouncing. God doesn't cover us in a big bubble and protect us from all bad things that are ever gonna happen. We live in a broken world, it's still broken, okay? And so God says, I will walk with you through that. And yes, sometimes I will step in and, and stop this or heal or do this. But he has also given us a promise. And that is this. Even though we might have to walk uh, this life uh, with, with a disease or, or a limp or a, something that's wrong, God promises in the end he's going to heal. He has told us on that day when we stand before him, we're gonna receive new bodies. Healed and whole. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more grief, no more need of healing because we will be made whole. And that is the promise that we have from him. He has redeemed us, he has brought us, bought us back, bought us back from the pit. David says, he bought our life from the pit. Without him, uh, we're heading for destruction, for death, what we call hell. And, and by the way, that, that buying back from the pit is not just someday when I die. Uh, many people today, maybe you here today, feel like you're living in the pit right now. But he has bought you back. He has redeemed you. You don't have to stay there. You will not forever stay there because this God has bought you back. And he desires to give us good things. And in the end, we will receive uh, youthful renewal, he says. So David says, he makes things right and just uh, for the oppressed. Verses six and seven. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. God is always working, even now, to make things right for people who have been wronged. 
And I know that's hard because we see around us people who have been wronged. Uh, and maybe sometimes we wrong people. Who makes that right? Why doesn't God just step in and stop people from doing bad things? The answer to that is because he's given us free will. He's given us choice. The answer to that is because love without choice is not love, is, is nothing. It's just a robot who is saying whatever they've been programmed to say. Instead, God is given a choice. And in order to give the choice, in order to give free will, he has to allow us to walk through the consequences of those choices. And not just me, but everyone else. And so sometimes your choices or my bad choices are gonna impact the people around me and we suffer because of that. And yet God promises that he holds us in his hand. And by the way, too, when we think about injustice in the world and we say, oh, there's so many injustices in the world. Why isn't God doing something? Well, you know, what is God's greatest tool for dealing with injustice in the world? What is his greatest tool? Who? What? Us. Us. You know, his people. You want to see injustice turned into justice in the world? then let God work through you. When you see that injustice, ask, what can I do about that? How can, can I surrender to God and let him use me? And you think, oh, but, but the world is so full of injustices everywhere. It's so huge. How can we begin to touch that? Well, touch what you can touch. You know, in your own personal world, as you walk through your life and you see something that's not right, do you take a stand? Do you show love? Do you try to make it right? Are you God's instrument in that? And by the way, we can Im impact the world. We can do things, especially in our day and age. You know, we just took a, a group of people and went down to Mexico and built a house for a family. You know, and you might say, you might look and say, well, there's all these people at the border and there's all these things that are happening and there's so much injustice there and how do we solve that? I don't know the answer, but you know, there's something we could do. And we, we did one thing for one family. What happens when God's people all begin to look and say, what can I do? How can I help? And God begins to work even now. And again, I don't wanna keep putting off, you know, in the sky by and by someday when I die <laughs> that that somehow then God's gonna fix everything. He has promised he will, but he's working now. David even lists Moses and the Israelites as an example. You know, God came in and he brought, 400 years there in Egypt. You know, they're under oppression. Terrible things were happening to them. They were slaves. They were taking their baby boys away and they were killing them. And the people were crying out. I'm sure they're crying out, Lord, where is your justice? Where is your righteousness now, Lord? And he says, look and see what I'm going to do. And he raised up Moses and he, and he performed his miraculous signs. We call them, you know, from the Egyptian side of things, it was plagues. <laughs> but his miraculous signs and brought them out to make them into a people. But again, he needed he desired and he required the cooperation of those people. Moses at the burning bush, when he calls him to do it, what's his answer? You bet, Lord, let's go do it. You and me, we're gonna make this happen. Is that what he said? Say no. Yeah, no, 
glad you knew that story. Yeah, no, no, he said, what? Why, why me, Lord? Yeah. It's like, what did I ever do? No, why me, Lord? I can't speak well, I can't. He comes up all these things, and finally he says, oh Lord, just send somebody else. I mean, he literally says that. And scripture says God's anger burned against Moses. And he says, Moses, quit whining, get up and go. And he's like, okay. You know how you tell your kids to do something, your kids are going, okay. And they go do it, and he goes. You know, and what's interesting is how he begins to serve God and, and we're told that there was no one, scripture tells us there was no one ever like Moses who spoke to God face to face like he did. But then there's the people. They rebel and they rebel and they rebel, even though God is leading them. And, and again, I think, I'd never do that. If I, had a, if I had a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day, man, I'd follow it anywhere. I mean, today, if I walk out there, I said, Lord, I need to know where I need to go eat lunch, and the pillar of cloud shows up, and, take, you know. No, you know, I am no better than those people. I'm as rebellious as those people, and yet God still loves. God still brings uh, his benefits. God still works his righteousness and justice to the oppressed. And then David says, he has been gracious to us, verses 8 through 12. Says the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. So again, the fact the matter is that, that rebellion is not just a characteristic of the Israelites, it's us. In fact, Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, laid on Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us all. God doesn't treat us as we deserve. Otherwise, we'd all be dead. Otherwise, this great experiment called planet Earth would have been done a long time ago. And as David said earlier, instead he has redeemed us, he has bought us back. Why? Because of a love for us that is greater than the distance between the earth and the stars. Now, I, I think about this as David, I picture David writing this, and I don't think he just sat down one day, you know, in his living room and said, oh, I'm gonna write a song. And I think that he, he took time and he worked at it and he built it. And I picture him out you know, maybe on a, on, a, on a balcony of the palace or, or maybe he was out on a hillside outside of, of the city and he looks up and sees the stars in the sky and he's thinking, how great, how great is God's love? It's greater than the distance from here to the farthest star I can see. Can you measure that? It's not the point. You can't. His love is so great. And then he says he's removed our sins from us, as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? Well, you can start heading east, that way. You can start heading east and go as far as you want and keep going around the earth and around the earth and around the earth and you're never gonna bump up against west. You're always gonna be going east. Or if you turn around, you can be going west and keep going and going and going and you're never gonna reach east. In other words, he's saying, you're never gonna see those again. God removes those sins as far as the east is from the west. It's an infinite amount. That's what he's done for us. That's how great his love 
is for us. And then David says in verses 13, 14, that he sympathizes with us. He's not just some God who, who, who's unfeeling, who sits back and watches the world spin and he says, oh, I'll do this and this and this and, and is uncaring. He sympathizes. Sympathy means he has emotion. He feels deeply for and about us. And so in verses 13 and 14, David writes, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. So he outlines this relationship that God desires to have with us. It's one of a parent to a child, like a father or a mother to their children. And those of you who are parents or have had parents, which uh, is about everybody, can understand hopefully what that's about. Now I know for some of us, you know, some people here might have had a parent who was not such a great parent. But, but I know in my experience with my kids, you know, as my boys are growing up, I have never been more mad at anyone than they have made me <laughs> at different times. I'm serious. You can talk to my wife. She gets more mad than me. No. No, no, no. Probably not. We can fight about it later. Anyway. <laughs> and yet, speaking for the both of us, uh, there's no one we love more. We would do anything for. We would give our lives for. And if we as broken people as people who don't get it right all the time, or a lot of the time, can be that way. David is saying, think of our heavenly father who is perfect, and he has this, he loves us that much, he sees our brokenness and our sin, does it make him mad sometimes, all the time? Yeah, but his love is greater. And, and so he, he understands, in fact, he knows our weakness. In fact, uh, David couches it, he knows we're made of dust, you know? You hearken back to, to Genesis where God took the dust of the earth and formed it into a man and breathed it into it life. You know, and, and so he understands that. And he forgives us and he loves us. He sympathizes with us. Well, now we come to stanza two, second verse. David says, praise God for who he is. We can praise him for all his benefits and we've done all that, but even if we didn't talk about the benefits, we can praise God just because he's God, just for who he is. I remember having a conversation with Charlie Kaiser about this once and we were talking about all the things God had done and how, how wonderful he is and how we should love him. And he goes, we, Charlie said, we should praise him just because he's God. We don't need anything else. And I think he's right. And now David picks that up as, as he speaks there and he says, we should, Praise him for who he is. He is greater than us. He's God. And so we read in verses 15 through 18, the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. So having reminded us that we are dust, David draws an even deeper contrast between God and who we are 
by saying that we're like grass or we're like flowers, especially a flower that might be under my care because it only lasts the day and then it's gone. You know, it's beautiful. My rhododendron out in front of my house, you know, had some beautiful blooms on it this year and I take a couple pictures of them, but you look at it now and it's just an ugly bush. You know, the flowers are gone. They bloom for the moment they're gone. That's what people are like. But God's love is eternal. It lasts forever. And so, and he is eternal. And so we have uh, this promise from everlasting to everlasting is the Lord's love that is poured out upon generation after generation. You know, I, I've kind of, Twilight and I both have gotten into looking at some genealogy stuff and all that. And you look back and you get back five generations, six generations, eight generations. And if you can find stuff that goes back that far, all these people, and you, you look at them, the magnitude of people um, who are part of your family tree and they're all gone. You know, I, I talked to somebody recently who, who lost a, a, a parent and they were sharing with me, yeah, now we're, we're the next generation. We're the ones now who are the next to go. And it's a sobering thing when you start to think of it in, in those terms. And yet, our God has been the same God through all those generations. And he will be the same God to our children and our grandchildren and their children and grandchildren until Jesus comes. And so we have this God who's eternal. We should praise him because it's not just that he's eternal, but his love that he has for us, David says, is eternal and is greater than we are. And he draws that contrast. David then also gives the caveat that God's blessings are only accessed by those who fear him and keep his covenant and who obey him. And it's not that we can live perfect lives, though we might want to, we find ourselves failing, yet he forgives us and he loves us and chooses us even in the midst of our disobedience. And certainly as David wrote that, he understood what he was talking about because David had some things that he needed to be forgiven. David was a murderer and an adulterer and yet confronted with his sin, he fell on his knees before God and God forgave him. God took him back. God redeemed him. Then David says, we should praise him because he is the God of all creation. In 19 he writes, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. His kingdom rules over all. He took one look, David did, at the mountains. He took a look at, at the oceans, the seas, or he took a look um, at the stars. Any part of creation, he realized that God is the ruler over all of this. He made all of these things. Not only that, he holds them in existence. Uh, that's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians when he writes, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities. We're talking kingship here, folks. He's greater than all thrones, dominions, principalities, authorities, because he made them. All things, were, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
He holds everything together. In fact, the writer of Hebrews uh, echoes that when he writes, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That always hits me when I read that passage. By his powerful word, that God can just say, exist. And it does. And if he said, don't exist, it would be gone. Should we not praise him? Should we not worship this one who is the king of creation? Then David says, finally, and he is the Lord of the angels. It's kind of interesting that he's been going along here. Now he he steps into this. But he writes in verses 20 through 22, praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, You, his servants who do his will, praise the Lord all his works everywhere in his dominion. He is the king. So David even calls upon the angels to praise the Lord, those powerful beings in front of whom people fall to the ground in fear. You know how we know this? Because every time we see an angel appear, the first thing they have to say to somebody is, don't be afraid. (laughs) Fear not, they say. Because when you come face to face with a powerful being like that, you can't help but shake at the knees and tremble or hit the deck or whatever your response might be, but it's fear. And yet as powerful as we might think they are, David calls and says, praise the Lord, because he's the king and he's greater than you by far. Come praise the Lord, all who are in his dominion. And guess what? That even includes us. And so David comes to the end of his psalm. Somehow I don't think that musically this psalm ends in some quiet contemplative little flute solo, okay, or oboe maybe. No, I think all the, they reach the end and by this point it's building and this big crescendo and all the instruments are, are cutting loose. And I think the choirs then have this big fortissimo and they begin to sing at the top of their lungs until they reach this last line, verse 22, set aside by itself, praise the Lord, praise the Lord my soul in seven-part harmony. Praise the Lord my soul. So the challenge for us, I mean, we can read this and say, oh, that's, that's cool, David, but What about us? What about me? What about my praise? Who is God to me? Maybe you're here today and and you're still trying to figure out if you believe in God. I get it, okay? You need to deal with that question, but but as we go to the Bible, we we have this story from front to back of, of a God who created it, and it's not just that we, it's not like believing in the Easter bunny or, or something like that, that we just have to, oh, we just take it on faith and whatever. We can see around us his creation. We can, we can see in the evidence that is there in creation. We can also see in the historical evidence that we see there, but most of all, it comes back to this Jesus who walked among us, who died and rose again. And again, as I've said before, that is really the linchpin for us. That we have a God who became 
one of us who never sinned, didn't deserve to die, but did, and took our place and rose from the dead. And if that is true, it changes everything. And the evidence for that is powerful, powerful. So if you're here and you're not sure what you think about God, take a look at Jesus, go to him, you know, see what is said about him and ask yourself, could this possibly be true? How do I line this up? Go to what you see in creation around you and ask, how did this get here? Is it just some cosmic accident? Or do I see design here and how do I line that up? What do I find there? For the rest of us, if we've come to this point where we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we accept that there is, in fact, a God who is king of all and the king of love, how does that impact me in terms of my praise? Am I just going through the motions? Or do I praise him with my whole soul, with all that is within me? Do I only, you know, on Sundays come and yeah, yeah, we'll give him some songs and we'll do some of the stuff. Or is it every day as I, I come to those points and, you know, in fact, my life as a whole is a worship of him, but, but I look for those opportunities to praise him personally. Now, do you have those moments when you, you know, you're just driving the car and you break into song? Those moments when you stop and you pray and say, oh, Lord, I, I praise you because of who you are and I won't forget your benefits, as David says. So we need to say to him, praise the Lord, O my soul. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God and king over all. You have shown us your love in so many different ways. And even beyond that, Father, just for who you are, we praise you, we worship you. And Lord, I pray that, that the hallmark of our, of our lives would be worship of you, that we would name you in every endeavor, in every success, in everything we do, that we would turn to you every time we are in need or hurting, that we would trust in you when everything around us is falling apart. For all of this, Father, we praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.